The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. As you just heard, uh, today we are gathered uh, to consider that often neglected and misunderstood subject of pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And for many reasons, some of which will become apparent in my presentation this morning, it is very important that we are here doing so. Um, Let me say at the outset that I'll be citing a lot of verses and passages. In the interest of time, I won't be quoting them all, uh, but some I will. So please take notes. Try, if you are taking notes, try to write down as many of the scripture references as you can so that you can uh, take a look at them later. Now, let me say, uh, by way of introduction, that throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament, uh, but throughout both the Old and New Testaments, the Holy Spirit is set forth as God's power and presence among his people. Uh, The word for spirit in Hebrew is uh, ruach, and pneuma uh, in Greek. Ruach is used roughly 90 times for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Pneuma is used more than uh, 250 times as a reference to the Spirit in the New Testament. Both words refer to wind or breath, and the general idea is the same. These words express energy, motion, life, and activity. Again, he is God's power and presence among his people. And though certainly more visible in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was also at work in the Old Testament. He was present at creation, hovering over the face of the waters, uh, ready to order and complete what the Father had purposed and planned. That's in Genesis 1, verse 2. Uh, The Holy Spirit was instrumental in the Exodus. We don't often talk about his role in the Exodus, but you can read about that in Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 14, a very interesting passage. Uh, He gifted God's people for service in the Old Testament, equipping Bezalel and uh, Aholiab with skill and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship uh, for excellence in artistic design for the building of the tabernacle. That's in Exodus 35, verses 30 through 35. Uh, We see frequently how the Spirit in the Old Testament rested on individuals like Balaam, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Azariah, among others, for special acts of speaking and uh, or or acting. Um, Many passages we could look at there. Uh, The Spirit could also come on people for a time and then depart, as Saul experienced in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, and as David feared. In his Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51, verse 11. Now, while the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament is certainly powerful, it is also less than complete. It's no surprise then that the Old Testament looks forward to a coming age of the Spirit. And there are three prophecies in particular that predict the glory of this new day. There's the prophecy, of course, in Joel, chapter 2, 28 through 32, looking forward to the Spirit's coming upon all of God's people. Then there's Ezekiel 36, 
verse 22 through 37, verse 14, awaiting the day when the Spirit will dwell within God's people personally and permanently. And then there's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, uh, which promises a Spirit-anointed branch from the root of Jesse who will usher in the day of salvation for Israel. So a universal spirit, an indwelling spirit, and a spirit-empowered Savior. This is the age of the spirit that the Old Testament anticipates. And, of course, under the New Covenant, this, this outpouring is realized. Uh, you can read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh, according to Acts 2, verses 14 through 21. The Spirit indwells all believers in this age of the Spirit, Romans 8, verse 9. And very interestingly, something we don't often think about, the Spirit empowers and glorifies the Spirit-anointed Messiah in his earthly ministry and saving work. And the New Testament emphasizes that last point more than we often realize. The Spirit empowered the Son through every stage of his ministry. Uh, The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary in the virgin conception. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon when he spoke about Jesus in the temple. The Spirit rested on Jesus at his baptism. Then the Spirit led Jesus, who Luke says was full of the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After the temptation, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and announced in the synagogue that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to proclaim the good news to the poor. It was by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons. Hebrews 9, verse 14 says it was through the eternal Spirit that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to God. And according to Romans 1, verse 4, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead through the Spirit of holiness. So from conception to birth, through life, ministry, death, and resurrection, the Spirit was at work upon and through Christ. And again, we see that the Holy Spirit in all the Bible is set forth as God's power and presence among his people. So with all of that in mind, we need to ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And to that question, I offer a fourfold response which will also serve as the outline for my message this morning. Who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. Second of all, the Holy Spirit is a divine person. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is a divine person distinct from the Father and the Son. And fourthly, if we have time, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, the Holy Spirit is a person. One of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is his or her belief in the Holy Spirit as a person. From the earliest days of the church, right up and on through the the period of modernism and now into postmodernism, there have been those who have denied the personality of the Holy Spirit in one form or another. Far too often we hear people speak of the Holy Spirit as an it, not a who. One reason why this is the case is that the nature of the Holy Spirit's work is to bring glory to Jesus Christ and not to himself. And that's why J.I. Packer calls the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity, the shy member of the Trinity. But this self-effacing role of the Spirit does not mean that the Holy Spirit is impersonal, nor does it mean he is not God. 
The spirit possesses the same characteristics of personality and personhood as do the other members of the Trinity, as well as the same divine attributes as the Father and the Son. Even as we speak of the Father as a person and as God, and the Son as a person and as God, so too we must speak of the Holy Spirit as a person and as God. He is the third person of the Holy Trinity, and not merely an impersonal influence or power or energy or force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and others claim. That claim, that view is not only unbiblical, but it robs us of some of the great blessings of our salvation, as we're going to see throughout the conference this morning. Now, in what ways does the Bible reveal to us that the Spirit is a person? Well, there are several. First of all, there is the use throughout the New Testament of the masculine pronoun he, in speaking of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, this pronoun is not called for from the rules of Greek grammar. And without getting technical, I mean, I don't know enough to get technical. I don't know enough Greek to get technical. But the word for spirit is not masculine in the Greek. It is neuter. We, and would normally be referred to with a neuter pronoun, not indicative necessarily of personhood. So the fact that the pronoun he is used is very telling. Secondly, the Bible attributes to him, to the spirit, a mind, will, and emotions, which are exclusively characteristics of a person. Impersonal objects or forces do not have these qualities, but the spirit of God does. Paul presupposes that the spirit has a mind when he writes that in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, he writes, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Here Paul is ascribing to the Holy Spirit knowledge, which an influence or a power does not have, but a person does. The Bible also pictures the Spirit as possessing the personal quality of a will, a will. We read, uh, we, uh, we read that when Paul, Silas, and Timothy wanted to go to Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, Acts 16, verse 7. There the Spirit was exerting a will. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul tells us that the Spirit gives many gifts to Christians as he wills. As he wills. And as far as emotions are concerned, Ephesians 4 verse 30 assumes that the spirit can have grief. He can be grieved. In fact, we're commanded, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So the Bible attributes to the Holy Spirit a mind, a will, and emotions. A third way in which the Bible indicates that the Holy Spirit is a person is that it ascribes personal activities to him. He intercedes. In Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, he testifies. In John 16, 12 through 15, he speaks. Mark 13, 11, he creates. In Genesis 1, verse 2, and in Luke 1, 35. A fourth way in which the Bible reveals that the Spirit is a person, and I, I think this is very important, it, it places him in juxtaposition with other persons. For instance, we know that the Father and the Son are persons. And so when Jesus speaks of baptizing disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, 19, he indicates by that that the Holy Spirit is a person too, just as the Father and the Son are. 
James, in authorizing certain instructions to the early church, he wrote, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then he goes on to list uh, those requirements. That's Acts 15.28. He very clearly considers the Holy Spirit a person capable of the same thoughts and ideas as he and the apostles had. Additionally, it would be a meaningless redundancy to say that Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit in Luke 4.14 if the Spirit were simply an impersonal power. I mean, listen to the phrase again, this time substituting the word power for Spirit. Jesus returned in the power of the power to Galilee. Right? That doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, there is Jesus' promise to send another paraclete. Parakletos, variously rendered helper, counselor, advocate, comforter. Uh, This term was commonly used to speak of a person who helps or gives counsel to another person or persons. And it's used of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. An impersonal force simply does not fit the description of what Jesus said his spirit would do. So I think it's pretty evident just from that brief survey that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person and how thankful we must be that the Spirit is a person. For it is just because he is a person that he can convict us of sin and thereby lead us to God, dwell within us, give us power over sin, inspire the Bible, illuminate our minds so that we can understand it, guide us so that we know what the will of God is, lead us in prayer, and call elders and deacons as office bearers in the church. And I would just pray that we would never deny the personality of the Spirit, but believe in him and experience the blessings that can come to us because of that truth. Amen? Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. Secondly, The Holy Spirit is a divine person. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God. There have been those throughout church history, and there are those today, who, while believing that the Holy Spirit is a person, nevertheless consider him to be a created personality and not God himself. I mean, they've realized that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal it, but they have considered him to be inferior to the Father. The Bible, though, attributes to the Holy Spirit not only personal characteristics, but also divine qualities. And these divine attributes mark the Holy Spirit as being God. According to the scriptures, the Spirit of God is omnipotent, for he has his role in creation. Genesis 1 again. He has his role in providence. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 30. Uh, In the supernatural conception of Jesus, in regeneration, and in the equipping of each Christian with spiritual gifts. He is also omniscient, as Isaiah suggests when he asks, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14. Paul would have us believe the same thing when he writes that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit is characterized as being omnipresent. 
The psalmist asks, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Psalm 139, verse 7. He says that he can never escape the Spirit's presence, not even if he ascends to heaven or descends to Sheol or flees to the seas or hides in the blackness of the night. The Spirit is everywhere. In the New Testament, we read that the Spirit dwells in believers, and the great number of Christians does not hinder him from being present in each one. So the Holy Spirit is clearly set forth as omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, and therefore God. Hebrews 9, verse 14 tells us that Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, ascribing to the Holy Spirit the divine quality of eternity or eternality. Another proof of the deity of the Spirit is to be found in the fact that both the Old and New Testaments at times interchange the phrase, the Spirit said, and the Lord said. And lastly, Again, the mere coupling of the name of the Holy Spirit with the names of the Father and the Son, as in the Great Commission or in the Apostolic Benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, shows that the Spirit is put on the same level as the other two persons uh, of the Godhead and therefore is considered to be divine. It would be very incongruous. It would be jarring even, and perhaps even blasphemous, to couple the name of a created being with that of the Godhead, right, in such a tightly knit expression as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, the Father, God, the Son, God, and the Holy Spirit, created finite being, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, the fact of the deity of the Holy Spirit is very important for us. If he were not God, he could not perform his beautiful work in creation, nor his authoritative work in inspiration, nor his illuminating work in men's minds, neither could he have overcome our depravity to regenerate and dwell and sanctify us. Now, you're going to hear more about the work of the Spirit in some of these areas in more detail as the day progresses, but none of them would be possible if he were just a finite being and not a divine person. And we may well be grateful that he is not a finite being, but a divine person, the third person of the glorious Trinity. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is a person, and he is God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is a divine person distinct from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit shares the same essence with the Father and the Son, and yet he is distinct from them. I mean, simply put, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. He is his own divine Person. And this is important because in the history of the church, there have been those who have believed in the personality of the Spirit and even in the deity of the Holy Spirit, but who have denied that there were three distinct persons in the Godhead. There were those as far back as the third century who pictured God as appearing in creation as the Father, later on in history as the Son, and finally making his appearance as the Holy Spirit. And according to this view, there were not simultaneously three persons in the Godhead. But the one Godhead was called the Father at one time, the Son at another, and the Spirit at a third time. Or the Father first changed into the Son and later into the Holy Spirit. And there have been variations on this idea. They, they more or less come under the heading of a heresy known as modalism. It still exists today. There are even some prominent 
so-called Christians who embrace this. Whatever you call it, it's an obvious departure from the revelation of Scripture. I mean, certain biblical texts are clear in pointing out that there are three distinct persons and not merely different manifestations of the same God. This is not just a matter of semantics. I remember years ago on that wonderful source of solid Christian doctrine, uh, TBN, (laughs) with uh, Paul Crouch sitting there and he had on some of these prominent Christians who believed in, in modalism. And basically, this is what they, this is what he said and what they all nodded their head in a group. This is just semantics. This doesn't really matter. This shouldn't divide us. This shouldn't separate. Oh, yes, it should. Yes, it should. Um, without a belief in, in the Trinity, I'm not saying we have to understand every fine point of it because we can't understand every fine point. But without a belief in what the Bible clearly teaches uh, about uh, the Godhead, uh, there is no salvation. Um, now, when Jesus was baptized, for example, the voice of the Father sounded from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the same time, the Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. We have the simultaneous appearance, right, of these three persons, making it impossible to interpret the Godhead simply as a as a unity that manifests itself uh, in different persons at different times. The same may be said of Jesus' statement, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, John 14, 16. Similarly, Acts 2, verse 33, draws a clear distinction among the three persons of the Godhead. Speaking of Christ, exalted at the right hand of God, he, Christ, has received from the Father the promised spirit. Now, though he is distinct from the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Uh, Romans 8, verse 9, And to say the Spirit of God lives in you, or the Spirit of Christ is in you, or Christ dwells in you, are three ways of essentially saying the same thing. The Spirit is sent from the Father and from the Son. In fact, the identity of the Son and the Spirit are so, they, they so overlap uh, that Paul can even say the Lord is the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now, again, this does not mean that the Son and the Spirit are one in terms of their being or person, uh, but rather that their mission is so united, they are one in their shared redemptive activity. Jesus is the truth. And the Spirit will lead the disciples into all truth. Jesus came to bear witness to God the Father. And the Spirit comes to bear witness to Christ. The sinful world did not receive Christ. And the sinful world will not receive the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is simply and gloriously another helper. The very power and presence of the resurrected and ascended Christ on earth. It is a wonderful blessing to have a God that is not just one person, but three. For not only is there a Father who loves us and cares for us, but also a Christ who obtained our salvation and intercedes for us, and a Holy Spirit who dwells within us and applies salvation to our lives.
Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. And the Holy Spirit is a divine person distinct from the Father and the Son. Now, fourthly and closely related to the third point is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, This was a serious point of contention in church history. Uh, In fact, it was in um, the year 1054, Christendom, I'll say, was split into the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And there were a lot of underlying factors, but a major uh, point of contention, stone of stumbling, was that the Eastern Church believed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone, whereas the Western Church is confessed um, with the Council of Toledo, going all the way back to 589 AD, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And as a result of these differences, believe it or not, the East separated from the West. And today, the Eastern Church actually has a membership, by some estimates, approaching as many as 300 million people. And it all goes back to this contention over the, um, uh, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Um, It may not seem... uh, like it, it, it matters, um, and it probably wasn't an issue that the church needed to divide over. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll just say this: you know, there, there is among the three persons of the Trinity a definite relationship and order. And because the three persons are equally God, equally God, it must not be thought that they are all the same. Each one has a distinctive characteristic and relationship to the other. Between the first and second persons, for example, there is the relationship of father and son. From all eternity, the father begat the son. The Holy Spirit did not beget the son, only the father did. In a similar way, there is an unchangeable relationship between the Holy Spirit and the other persons of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son. And it's, and it's difficult to describe what is meant by the procession of the Spirit of God. We can do a little more this morning than just repeat the words of Scripture, since the Scriptures do not really explain what this means. But it is remarkable, I think, that the Bible does not say that the Holy Spirit was begotten by the Father, as was Christ, nor that he was begotten by Christ. I mean, if that were true, as the Church Fathers explained, the Spirit would have been either a brother to Christ or a grandson to the Father, Uh, But the Bible carefully avoids the term begotten in relation to the Holy Spirit. And as the Athanasian Creed correctly puts it, he was neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding, proceeding. And that word proceed is used by Jesus in John 15, 26, where he says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Um, The name of the Spirit also gives another hint as to this intra-Trinitarian relationship. And when you talk about intra-Trinitarian relationship, I mean, you are really plumbing like the, the, the depths of the mysteries of God that we can never possibly understand in any kind of fullness in this life. But it is worth thinking about. 
for as the name Father shows his relationship to the Son, and the name Son describes his relationship to the Father, so also the name Spirit points to the relationship of the Spirit to the other two persons. It is one in which he is breathed, for that's the very meaning of the name Spirit. And it should be remembered that although the Spirit proceeds from or is breathed by the Father and the Son, he is still fully God. His procession does not mean that he is inferior to the Father or the Son. Any more than the begetting of the Son means that he is not on equality with the Father. Uh, the secret lies in the fact that the Spirit was eternally breathed, just as the Son was eternally begotten. There was never a time when the Spirit was not being breathed. He was eternally coexistent with the Father and, and the Son. And to say that he proceeded from or was breathed out by the Father and the Son does not imply that he is less God, but it only indicates the relationship that he eternally sustains the other two persons of the Trinity. And again, it should be noted that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son and not only from the Father. Now, that he proceeds from the Father is obvious. We just read John 15, 26. It's not so clear that he also proceeds from the Son, which is why I said earlier, maybe this was not something that the church, uh, that should have led to such division in church history. But I think we can deduce this, that he proceeds from the Son as well, from those passages that tell us that Jesus sends out the Spirit in the world. He breathes him onto his disciples. This temporal breathing out of the Spirit implies an eternal breathing out. And it reflects the authority or a certain authority that the Son has, even in the intra-Trinitarian relationships. Uh, besides, the Spirit is not only called the Spirit of the Father, but also the Spirit of the Son in Galatians 4, 6, the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, verse 9, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1, 19. And this relationship of the Spirit to the other two persons explains why the Holy Spirit is considered the third person of the Trinity, and not the first or the second. The Father is first because he begets the Son. The Son is the second person because he is begotten. And the Holy Spirit is third because he proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Now, practically speaking, is there any practical relevances? Well, there is. Um, Abraham Kuyper has, I think, incisively pointed out that when we deny or simply do not understand that the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as from the Father... This often leads to an unhealthy mysticism. It tends to isolate the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from the work of Jesus. Redemption by Christ is put in the background while the sanctifying work of the Spirit is brought to the fore. Now, of course, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives is vitally important. But that work is never carried out independent of the purpose and work of Christ in redeeming us. And when we don't understand that, the emphasis is more and more on the work of the Spirit in our lives, it leads to an independence from Christ, from the church, even from the Bible. As Kuiper explained, sanctification can loom larger than justification. The subjective communion with the Spirit, our individual communion and a subjective level with the Spirit, larger than the objective church life. And illumination by the Spirit, or even today, new revelation by the Spirit, larger than the word. And we see this happening today. In a lot in, in so many areas of the church, we see things, works, very strange works, um, attributed to the Holy Spirit. That if you really look at them and think of them, have nothing to do with Christ and and his redeeming work on our behalf. 
And I think part of it comes back to this, the fact that there really isn't a lot of uh, understanding of this this point about the Holy Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. That's not to say that we should not strive to know experientially the Spirit and his workings. But only as that striving is rooted in and built upon the knowledge of the glorious revelation that the Holy Spirit has given of his place in the Trinity. His place in the Trinity. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person distinct from the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Finally, let me just say a word about the special prominence of the Holy Spirit in this age. As John Piper points out, there is a peculiar responsibility upon us today to know and experience the Holy Spirit. And here's why. Uh, John Owen, in his work on the Holy Spirit, points out Uh, Something very interesting. The Bible portrays for us, he says, a history of redemption with three major divisions that reveal progressively the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before the first coming of Christ, according to Owen, the great testing truth was the oneness of God's nature and his monarchy overall, especially with respect to the person of the Father. When Christ came, The great question was whether a people orthodox on the first point would recognize and receive the incarnate Son of God in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. Then, after the Son had gathered a people who received him, he was put to death, raised up, and exalted to the Father's right hand, from which he sent the Holy Spirit with new prominence upon the church. So, before Christ's coming, the prominence of God the Father. During the days of Christ's earthly life, the prominence of God the Son, and since the ascension of the Son, the prominence of God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we live in a unique, climactic period of redemptive history, the days of the Spirit. And just as Israel of old had a special responsibility to know and honor God as Father in the oneness of his nature, and just as the the people of Palestine had a special responsibility to know and honor Jesus as the Son of God in the days of his flesh, So now we have a special responsibility to know and honor the Holy Spirit, not to the exclusion of knowing and honoring the Father and the Son, uh, but we do have a special responsibility to also know and honor the Holy Spirit. As John Owen has said, the sin of despising his person, meaning the Holy Spirit, and rejecting his work now is of the same nature with idolatry of old and with the Jews' rejection of the person of the Son. And I'll close with these words from John Piper. Oh, how favored we are as a people to be living in the age of the Spirit. Spread out for us all to see and to marvel at is the history of revelation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How thankful we should be that we were born, owing to no virtue in us whatsoever, in a day when the fullness of God's nature as three in one has been revealed and when the various ministries of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been displayed and offered for our experience. Surely everyone who loves God will be earnestly seeking to know and experience as much of God as possible. And in our day, that means especially as much of the Holy Spirit as possible.